God is good. And last year, I don't think we had this up the top. Some people are like, what's up there? It's people. And it's great. It's amazing. Welcome. If you're up there, you are committed because I know what it's like to sit up there. The temperature is different up the top. Um, friends, I just want to pause. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life. I used to be the pastor at New Life Brisbane um, until two months ago. Uh, and I want to pause just, just for a moment before we just get into the sermon to just say thank you. First of all, I want to thank you um, to Reverend David Bush, who's with us down the back from South Morton Presbytery. Um, those of you who are not aware, we couldn't have done this without Presbytery support from South Morton, but also Morton Rivers and our, our chair of Presbyteries here as well, Mrs. Linda Hansen, who Mrs. Reverend Linda Hansen who is also a part of our church. It's a blessing. We've got um, some elders here. We've got some executive leadership team here. But the best part is that you are here. And the truth is, last year, Peter Armstrong stood on this stage and he said about our first year birthday, this is our Ebenezer moment. This is our moment when we remember how God has provided, that he has done exceedingly above what we could hope or imagine. Over the last year, we've seen some of our members go through brain surgery. We've seen some of our members suffer through illness still. We've seen people get jobs, lose jobs, have babies, struggle and pray for families, for partners. We've seen people come and people go. But what we've seen most of all, friends, is despite the ups and downs of life, God has done something beautiful here amongst us. And what I love is that two months ago, I stepped away from being the local pastor of New Life Brisbane, and it doesn't feel like we've missed a beat. Because this wasn't me. This was a people. This was us, called out by God, trusting in God, that he could do what we could only dare to dream and imagine. And so here on our second birthday, I listened to these stories, and my heart's overwhelmed because I think, man, it, it was all worth it. Every 40-degree summer in this room, was worth it. Every time that we weren't sure how to put up lights or how to you know, get here at 1 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon and spend the next eight hours serving, it was all worth it. Every moment we had to drive into the middle of Brisbane City when it was pouring because everyone else was driving out, it became worth it. And here's what I know. The next year will remind us that it will still be worth it because there is far more ahead than what lays behind. Amen? Amen. Amen? Come on, Calvin like did this amazing speech about clapping and cheering and, and we need to lean into that this afternoon because today on our, come on, amen. Because here's the thing, when anyone on the Gold Coast questions why we should church plant, all I have to do is invite them here because this is the beautiful reason. Because here we see the purpose of why we do church planting that here in the center of a the city, there would be life and life to the full. And every time a, a, a one of our family from the Gold Coast comes to visit, they're like, man, God is good and faithful. Look at what he's doing here. It's a beautiful thing. And today, friends, it's a bit ironic because in amongst this weather, uh, we were discussing whether I should or not, um, but then the team were like, no, 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 let's keep going. Um, I get to preach on Noah and the flood of all things, <laughs> of all things, um, which is beautiful. It's a hard text. Um, and this morning, God was so faithful and good, and I recognize that, that I want to move quickly through this. So on this, our second birthday, weirdly, we're preaching about Noah and floods and water, but I think there's some beauty in it for us. So would you just lean in and pray with me real fast as we begin? So gracious God, we don't have much time here, but I pray that we would give you the time that you need, that you want to open up your word to our hearts. Your word is faithful. Your word is good. But we need you more than anything. 
bring clarity to my confusion, bring, make sense out of the words that come from my mouth, Lord God, and I pray that from when they leave my mouth and they hit people's hearts, that you've done something with them, that people would hear your voice. Less of me, more of you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In school, I hated maths. Can I get an amen? All right. Now, I know it's a controversial commercial way to start, and that's usually because, hands up, who's a maths teacher or who loved maths? Awesome. <laughs> wow. Only at New Life Brisbane, half the population. Yeah. We're smart, Michael. We're not like you. Yeah, I get it. That's cool. I didn't like maths in school because I was really good at solving problems, like not solving problems, at memorizing formulas. I understood how to memorize formulas. I knew that to work out something to do with a word called hypotenuse, you needed to know that A squared plus B squared equals... At the Gold Coast this morning, no one knew. No one. And I was like, oh, you guys would be horrible with triangles. But there's this moment where you've got to take the formula, and there's this second exam you've got to sit called the problem-solving exam, right? I hated it because it didn't make sense. I could regurgitate the formula. I didn't know how to, re- like, apply the formula. And I was that kid in class. I was like, when on earth am I going to need to work out the side of a triangle in my life? Give my parents back their money. We're going somewhere else. And then my parents, the kind of parents, like, discipline my child. Like, that's, that's, that was my upbringing. So that kind of is what happened there. But then you realize that when you go into the world that how smart math teachers were, because our world is filled with math problems. You recognize that when they're like, if Johnny has five apples and you get two, how many John- apples does Johnny keep? That kind of stuff happens all the time in my world. I'm like, oh, that's, you know, you go to landscaping, it's all triangles. That sets its world. And what you realize, friends, is that our world just isn't filled with mathematical problems. Our world is filled with problems. Our world is filled with moments that calls us to apply wisdom or understanding to problems that we may never have faced before. In fact, I can guarantee you today that many of you have walked into this room with problems. Maybe your problem is sitting next to you. Maybe your problem is mathematical, it's financial, and you're trying to work that out. Maybe your problem is relational. Maybe your problem has to do with work, with health. That I, I want to hazard a guess that for many of us, the problem has to do intern- with internal stuff as well. Things that don't teach you in maths class. It doesn't take a genius to work out that the world is not doing too well. That the world we live in is problematic. And it needs the people ready for one of the greatest exams of all time to answer the question, how do we solve this problem? See, this is my first time preaching Genesis and uh, here at New Life Brisbane. And what I've loved is that you've had rich and good teaching, starting with Dr. Paul Jones, moving all the way through the last week with Tim Hanna. But as I've been approaching the text, and I think you should be faithful with how you've been examining it each week, I want to argue that when we step into the book of Genesis, what we're actually stepping into is not a book that's necessarily a historical document. It's not a book that's primarily a scientific document. I'm not saying it doesn't have history or science in it. It probably does. But specifically, Genesis 1 to 11 is more often than not understood as a theological document. A document that is a book, a a couple of chapters, these narratives, that are meant to help us understand the great questions of our world. See, 
the book of Genesis chapter 1 to 11 was written to a Hebrew people who were forming who they were, needed to understand who they were in times of trial and in times of pain. And to translate this into our day and age, what I would help you un- help to unpack it a little bit more is that I believe Genesis 1 to 11 deals with something called a worldview. Now turn to the person next to you and say worldview. This isn't going to be important. Everyone has a worldview. And a worldview are these glasses. I know you're like, you just wanted to put glasses on today, didn't you, Michael? Yes, I did. They're, a worldview is these, are these lenses through which we look at the world. A worldview are these, these ways that, that we see reality. Everybody has glasses that they wear. If you're an atheist, you have a worldview. If you're a Muslim, you have a worldview. If you're a Hindu, you have a worldview. If you're a Christian, you have a worldview. And most religious scholars believe that worldviews answer some basic questions. How did we all come to be? What is the purpose of humanity? What went wrong? And how do we solve that problem? Now, this is actually Genesis. In fact, if you click through the next slide for me, James, you'll see Genesis chapter 1 tries to struggle with the question, where did we all come from? We find that God brings order out of chaos. We believe God is the beginner of all things, and from all things come from God. We find in Genesis chapter 2, what is the purpose of humanity? Humanity was created in the image of God. It was created on purpose, for purpose. In Genesis chapter 3, it goes into the next worldview question, which starts to unpack, well, what went wrong? If Eden was meant to be so good, where did it all go wrong? In fact, not only in Genesis chapter 3, but Genesis 2 to 5 kind of deals with the question, how did it all go wrong? And this is why it's important, because today I believe Genesis chapter 6 to 9 answers actually the next worldview question for us, or at least it stumbles into it. How do we solve the problem? And so we step into the narrative of Noah and the ark. Now, that's a pretty depressing way to enter into Noah and the ark. How do we solve the problem? Flood everything. That's not so much what it's about. When we think of Noah and the flood narrative, what do we think of? More often than not, we think of this, some kind of cartoon narrative that gives us a desensitized version of what was actually a quite horrific event. Now, why do we do this? It's because in kids' life right now, this is what your children are learning about, this. And we didn't want them to have nightmares tonight when they're wondering, will God flood the earth tonight? That wasn't the point of it. But when we talk about the flood narrative, different things uh, like evoke in many of us. In fact, in some people, they've been so inspired to actually go and build their own arcs. Now, the one on the right is built by a man in, uh, a Dutch man in Europe who spent $6 million, got a bunch of teachers, probably mathematics teachers, to come together and build that ark. How big was it? Is it how big is a life-size ark? About 137 meters long, 23 meters wide, and 11.5 meters high. Now, not to be outdone, of course, Ken Ham, if you know anything about Ken Ham, went and was like, I've got to go and do better. So he spent $100 million building a life-size ark in Kentucky. Today's sermon not, is not going to be about good financial management, but those stories raise some questions about how we're allocating finances in Christendom. But why did they do it? They did it primarily for this reason. When both of these guys were asked, why did you build this ark? They said, because we want people to believe that God is real. Now, I want to suggest this thinking is problematic. Because it suggests that if you can build an ark described in the Bible at a catalytic kind of terrible event that is built to scale, people will look at the ark, then suddenly assume the flood narrative must be true, and therefore, once realizing that God flooded the earth, then choose, oh, the next logical thing I will now do is believe in God. 
I, I think there's a couple of steps missed there. I don't think it's a catalytic moment to see a big ship and go, I will believe. Why? Why? Because I don't know if the purpose of the flood narrative is a debate around truth. I don't know if the purpose of the flood narrative is for us to ask this question, did it really happen? Now, here's what I want to communicate. I think what the writer of this story is trying to communicate is not necessarily historical truth, is not necessarily scientific truth. He's trying to answer probably the best question that we should all ask when you read the flood narrative. Why would this happen? Why is far more significant than if. Because I think in the why, we understand the what. In fact, if anyone reads the story, most people evoke this. They don't go, I wonder if anyone could build an ark. They ask the question, why would God do this? And that is possibly the best question. A guy named Walter Brueggemann, we're going to call him the Bruggs for short. No one laughs when I say that, and I always think it's a really funny joke. Says this, this story is not concerned with historical dates, data, but with the strange things which happen in the heart of God that decisively affect God's creation. With equal firmness, we must deny that this is a myth expressed in Israel just as it is in every other ancient culture. What's he saying here? He's saying, if your main focus of this story is, did God flood the earth? You're going to miss out on what's happening here and what God's trying to communicate. It's a bigger question than that. But also at the same time, if we're like, oh, it didn't happen and I'm fine with that, that's also not the point of the story. Don't be so fast to jump to either pendulum. Because you see, what you find is every other, every other, most other religions that were writing or around at the time that this text was written, the Babylonian religion, the Arcadian religion, all included a flood narrative in their religious text at the same time, which indicates that this was a dominant religious narrative, just like the creation narrative was a dominant religious narrative. So the Hebrew people surrounded by these opposing religions, when they are reading this text, they are seeing not necessarily a debate around truth, but an apologetic defense of the character of God in comparison to the other gods of their day. The writer of this story is wanting to hold up the God of the Bible against the gods of the pagan world and say, look at our God in our narrative, which is similar to yours, but is not our God far more trustworthy, faithful, and good? This is pivotal. This is so important because it actually starts us to wrestle with the fact that maybe something better is going on here than just God flooding the world. I want to argue this, that this story primarily reveals to us God's commitment to creation and humanity, even more so his commitment to our redemption, our flourishing, and our good. I do not believe the flood narrative is about God moving against creation. God doesn't move against creation. I believe God is moving intrinsically for creation in this story. And, and most theologians, from what I understand, would agree. In fact, that wasn't my thought. That was a theological thought from commentaries I've just communicated to you. So I'm like, oh, people are agreeing with Michael. No, I am agreeing with them. So what I want to do today is I really want to move fast through the story. We could read through the, all of the flood narrative. Um, it would take us about three hours, so we're not going to do that line by line and unpack it. Instead, I'm going to move quite fast through five scenes that help us unpack the important parts. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. And remember, what we're, what we're processing here is, how do we solve the problem of sin? Two weeks ago, we learned that sin, selfishness, is a damaging problem that has uh, 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 broken the, the way of God in our world. So the question is, if that's the problem, how do we solve it? 
And here we step into the story. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, uh, you, you actually stumble into a kind of a bit of a weird story where men and angels and these things called Nephilim are doing some weird stuff. We're not going to start there because that would take us off track too much. What we're going to start is Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, where the writer sets the story. He writes this, or the person writes this, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race. Everyone say, wickedness. It's not a nice word. Of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Every inclination was only evil all the time. When we read this story, so many, we've got a becoming WhatsApp group where we all kind of talk about our questions. It kind of lit up around Genesis chapter 6 when we got there. People were like, what the heck? What's going on here? I don't know if I like this story. I'm not sure I like God. I'm not coming to church on Sunday. Goodbye. See you. you know, not really. Didn't get that drastic. Started to head in that direction. What was happening in that moment for people was they get offended at God's reaction to wickedness because I think we downgrade wickedness in our minds. When we look at the word wickedness, sometimes we can think of that moment when you go to the fridge late at night and you get some ice cream, you're like, gonna be a little bit naughty, put a bit of chocolate sauce on top, I'm a little bit wicked tonight, am I right, everybody? And you're out there and you're like, yeah, well, what we do is we, we desensitize that understanding of wickedness. We don't think it's as bad as it sounds. But hear how the writer un- depicts this. Every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. There weren't some people making some mistakes and then going and feeding the poor in the valley. There weren't some people like stumbling over here, but then, you know, we're trying harder over here. There's this sense that the the nature of this world is intrinsically wicked. It's horrible. It's not something I would talk too much about with our children, but we should probably let our imaginations go there. How bad does that sound? What does that sound like it's happening all the time? Now, don't say that too long. But the words, the acts, the deeds that this kind of infers are horrific. It is not a world that we would like to live in. It is not a world that we would rejoice at. Friends, don't downgrade wickedness to upgrade your anger at what God does in this next moment. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, we see God's reaction to this wickedness of evil in every heart all the time. What happens? The, the Bible says this, the Lord regretted that he made human beings on the earth and that his heart was deeply troubled. This was the second verse that people were like, God regretted making me? What? And it's because I think, once again, we've not wrestled with that this is an English translation of the ancient Hebrew text written by people in a time other than ours, a finite human being trying to put words to describe the infinite and his reaction to a moment. Or his response. This word regret, when we think about it, we think of it, let's use ice cream again. It's almost like I regret eating that ice cream with chocolate sauce last night. What are we saying? If I knew I would feel this way this morning, I would have gone back, I would never have eaten the ice cream in the first place. I would have chosen celery instead and had a better day. That's how we kind of understand this word regret. But in the actual text, the word regret is better translated, and Paul Jones will let me know afterwards if I get this right, as naham. Niham, there we go. There we, 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 I, knew, I knew he was going to come through. That was amazing, Paul. Nailed it. Um, and, and this word, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher it, but this word Niham is, it's more than regret. It's this sense of to be sorry, to console oneself, to repent, to regret, comfort, or be comforted. How can I explain this better would be to uh, 
tell you of an experience many people in this room have not had, but parents of teenagers kind of understand this emotion. This one person's like, yes. What do I mean by that? There is a grief in God at the moment that does not say, I wish I'd never created humanity. It is a grief of remorse at what humanity has become. So much like when a teenager rebels, a parent never goes, I wish you were never born. But oh my gosh, this pain, watching you rebel, watching you hurt yourself, watching you walk through this, this is painful. The word regret doesn't do the emotion of God justice in this. And, and this is so important. Why? Because it's, it's vital that we understand that God is grieved by wickedness. That God it grieves God. That in this moment, there is this sense of, 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 of sorrow in the heart of God. He does not delight in this. Why is this so helpful for us to understand? Because the next line, this guy named Andy, um, Andy Payton, I think his name is, it'll be on the next slide, says it like this, God doesn't take pleasure in the flood. Rather, Genesis highlights how the wickedness unleashed by the fall caused him sorrow and grief. God made the earth to be a place where humanity could flourish, but instead they turned it into a theater of violence and disaster, and God's heart was broken. This is such a better understanding of Genesis 6 verse 6. Why should this comfort us? Because it tells us how God responds to moments. See, I believe uh, biblically and theologically an understanding of God is that God is both in time but is also outside of time. God can see time at its beginning and its end. That I do believe God can see the fullness of time and its full orchestration, but God is not some deific figure standing back going, you guys work it out, it'll all play out okay. No, the God that we serve, the God that this text seems to paint to us is a God who isn't just observing time, but isn't just knowing how the flood will end. But in this moment, enters into time itself and responds with grief. Because he didn't know how it would end? No. Because our God doesn't react emotionally, but responds emotionally. This is comforting to us. We see this at the tomb of Lazarus with Jesus, who knew how the story would end with Lazarus coming out of the tomb. But what does the Bible tell us Jesus did? Jesus wept. This, this is good news, friends. Because in your moments, when you're walking through struggle and strife, and you call out your, in your grief to God, or when you've walked through pain, or even when you're struggling with sin, even though God knows how your story ends, God's not standing in heaven going, cheer up, bucko. It'll be okay. I know how it finishes. Suddenly God became like, you know, weird British, like Australian mix. That's not how God, there's this sense where God in the moment, whilst he knows how the story ends, responds with the gravity the moment requires. God grieves when we grieve. God's heart breaks when we fall short. When he sees wickedness, he doesn't go, well, I know where the wickedness is going to end up. He goes, my heart is still grieved. Our God is a different God than the other gods that were painted of that day and of that time. And as we stand here and we know that the next moment in our story is that where God floods the earth in response to this grief, I just want to ask, when we go, oh, I can't believe God would do that, at what point would the wickedness have been enough for you to deign it appropriate? Like in your finite moral subjectivity, when would it have been okay? When would the world have gone so far that it would have been appropriate for God to respond to the wickedness of the world with flooding? When? And I actually want to suggest we would all have a point in our mind. 
Like everyone is like Hitler. Like there would be a thing in us, we're like, oh my gosh, that's horrible. That's not a good, there would be a point in us, but in this moment, we have to trust that God is not reacting and going, well, there's some good stuff happening, however, now, there is a moment here, and, and a guy named uh, by, by Victor P. Hamilton describes it like this. See, God's decision to destroy what is, God's decision is to destroy what is virtually self-destroyed or self-destroying already. He's knowing the trajectory. Now, we can respond to that and go, yeah, but what if, what if the humanity righted itself? And my offer to that would be this. Where in history do you see humanity proven to be able to do that? Where has humanity ever been able to right itself by itself? We're lost without, without some kind of formal direction. So in this moment, God responds, and God's grief says, I, we start again. But in this, it is not completely hopeless, because in Genesis chapter 6, he also identifies that there is a man, and this man's name is Noah. And in Noah, we see him establish a covenant with Noah. He says this, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, and you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. There's this covenant. Now, the word covenant is understood kind of like a relational promise. But this is important here. Because if we see this narrative as an apologetic defense of the character of God against other gods, what we must ask is, how did the other gods be depicted as acting in the flood epic? There's one epic where the God literally chooses to destroy all of humanity because they are too noisy and annoying. There is another narrative where it's out of just the savage viciousness of, of the, the God's heart that they choose to actually wipe out humanity. It is only in the Hebrew, narr Hebrew narrative. In fact, in those other narratives, the only reason why, why man survives is because man thwarts the plans of God, builds a boat, and hides from God that he might save himself. It is only in the Hebrew narrative where God steps in and makes a deal with man and says, I want to preserve what is good. I want to preserve what is good about creation. It's only in the Hebrew narrative we see this God, the God of the Hebrew, care for humanity. It's a juxtaposition, friends. It's an apologetic defense of the character of the God that the Hebrews are, are, are learning about and writing about. In this moment, we see Noah come to know this God, come to walk with this God, come to hear this God. And I want to move a little bit quickly through this moment because there is so much richness in this, but read it, do the work, and explore it, and read commentaries on it. But we can't get bogged down too much here. The next thing that happens in this story is the covenant's made with Noah. He goes into the ark. The earth is flooded for 40 days and for 40 nights. And on the ark, there is animals... It's debated whether there are two animals or seven animals, and, and Paul Jones will know the answer to that. He's waiting downstairs at the end of the service. would love to chat with you more about it. But the essence of the story is, is what happens next. In the, after the 40 days and 40 nights, we read this beautiful verse in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, which we read this. After the world had been flooded and Noah had been on the boat with his family for 40 days and 40 nights, but God remembered Noah. Now, this is another confusing moment for us because we're like, God, what were you doing? It's like playing ping pong with Gabriel. And he's like, oh, uh, oh my gosh, Noah. That's right, the earth. Turn the taps off, everybody. Let's come back. Like, and I think it's because, once again, when I read it, I'm, I'm diminishing God to my understanding. Because when you think about the act of remembering, remembering doesn't actually mean you forgot. Like, if, if I met you and it's like, hey, Josh, I'm going to remember your name. That's not me saying, I will forget, and fingers crossed, I hope I remember. No, it's a commitment that your name will now be in my cognitive memory, that I will think of your name. 
See, this is not a moment where it's saying God forgot and then ran back and like, oh, my, my, Moses, Moses, my bad. It's a moment going, oh, God never forgot. My grandfather was a Vietnam War vet, and every year um, I celebrate Anzac Day, and I remember the sacrifice and pray that war would not be a reality in our world. Now, you do not need to tell me when April comes around that April's coming around because I don't forget. I promise that I will always remember, lest we forget. This is the same thing that happens here. And why is this important? Because in the middle of the chaos of this moment, what you see happen is that God who separated the waters, that Paul Jones talks so beautifully about, represented the chaos and disorder of the world. What does God do? He brings the waters back together again in a moment of decreation. And in that chaos, in that moment of disorder and dysfunction, Noah is on a boat thrown around, thrown around with his family, with the, with, with the animals. And in that, I'm sure there would have been a moment of Noah going, I wonder if God remembers me. And the Bible tells us, but God remembers. And to me, I am reminded that there's times in my life that I have felt thrown around by the chaos of my own sin, of the disorder of my own world. And the truth of Scripture is that God doesn't forget. And I sense that there's someone in this room that just needs, like, just for a sidebar for a second, not necessarily what Genesis is about, but you need to know God remembers you. You have not been forgotten. The God that remembers Noah is the God that knows every hair on your head who formed you in your mother's room, that knew your name before it was spoken. This is the God of the Hebrews. It's the God of New Life Brisbane. Do you know him today? And this God who doesn't forget Noah pushes the waters back. And, and, and there's a moment when the, the ark comes down to rest on Mount Ararat. Now, we know where the ark is purported to have rested. Does that mean that we should all go buy tickets to the Middle East and go find Mount Ararat? And I, my answer would be no. Because if you found the ark on Mount Ararat, I actually believe this, I don't think it would add any more meaning to the text. And if we don't find the ark on Mount Ararat, I don't think it robs the text of any meaning because it's more, it's bigger than where is the ark. It's who is God. What is he being revealed to be and who are we? And, and as Noah walks out of the ark, God establishes a covenant with him again. Not a second covenant, but it's the same one. It's a continuation and it's this sign saying, God says, Noah, I knew how this would end. So this will be my covenant with you. God in Genesis chapter 9 verse 11 says to Noah, I establish my covenant with you that never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. But before this moment, there's a beautiful, a beautiful thing that happens. When Noah walks out of the ark with his family, you want to know what God says to him in uh, Genesis chapter 9 verse 1? Words that remind us of a story earlier. He says to Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Who did he say that to last time? Adam and Eve. What is the Noah story? It's a story of recreation. It's a story of the chaos descending back and God bringing order once again and saying, let's have a second chance. Let's go again. And in this moment, God then turns around and says, I make my covenant with you, Noah. I will never flood the earth again. And how does he do this? He puts a rainbow in the cloud. And this will be on the next screen. God makes an irreversible commitment 
that the post-flood, post-chaos situation is decisively different in extraordinary resolve. God now says, never again, thanks to the Brugs. Why is this good news? You know why it's good news? Because Noah, this man who the whole weight of recreation, of being like a second Adam, this man who is meant to restore the earth, bring flourishing to the earth. Do you want to know what Noah does? Moments, maybe days after walking off the flood. He stuffs up. Wickedness comes from Noah's heart. He sees a fruit, which reminds me of another story. He makes alcohol, and alcohol, whilst not being intrinsically wrong, when abused, like most of God's creation, is used for evil purposes, and he abuses it and gets uh, wastedly drunk. He bashes his family. He steps back from the call and appointing and anointing of God in this moment. And what we discover is this. The flood didn't solve the problem. It didn't solve it. It's still there because there's not this understanding that just remove Noah from all the other wicked people and then Noah will be good enough because the problem wasn't everyone else. The problem of sin isn't something out there, friends. It's something in here. It's in the heart of man. So why the flood? Because because I think this narrative points towards the Israelite people, the Hebrew people, and even us the different ways that God could have solved the problem that we might come to the realization there is only one way to solve the problem of the human heart and the human condition. And the next moment after this, after the flood, after we find out that pushing the reset button somehow doesn't change the human heart, maybe you might say, well, maybe God, what we actually needed was a bunch of boundaries and a bunch of laws and a bunch of rules that we can obey so we know what you want. So what does God do to the people of Israel? In the book of Exodus, He gives them the law as a way of rescuing themselves, of living righteous, of being good enough. And what do they do time and time again? They fail. Well, God, maybe we just need a leader who can point us in the right direction. You're up there and we need someone down here. So there is the season of the judges that leads Israel for a time, meaning that they should be righteous, pointing them back to God. But what happens time and time again, they forget and they turn away, they fail. So God, we need a king. That will solve our problem. Like every other nation, so God brings kings. And if you know the story of the Old Testament, time and time again, the kings fail. So we need to hear your voice clearly, God. Send us someone who knows your voice. So God sends prophet after prophet after prophet. And the whole Old Testament is this series of events where God illustrates that the human heart is not good enough to make its way back home. What do they do with the prophets? They kill them because they don't like truth that the prophets reveal. So what does God do? What's his option? This is why Romans 5 verse 8 is so beautiful. Because whilst we were still sinners, it says, at the right time, Christ came and died for us. We have thousands of years of history in the Old Testament of proof that humanity cannot right itself. And if we didn't have that proof, I guarantee you, if Jesus came before the flood, someone would be like, yeah, but you didn't really give us an opportunity to prove ourselves, did you? The next thousands of years is the illustration that no matter how much help God gives humanity, it is helpless on its own because the problem's not there, it's here. We don't need a behavior modification plan, plan, friends. We need spiritual transformation. 
is the only way. So what does God do? God steps off the throne. He becomes the prophet who would speak truth and life. He becomes the only king that we could ever need. He becomes the judge of all judges. He becomes the fulfillment of the law that we would break, that he would uphold. He becomes our salvation. And he points to this in the story. Now, theologians, this is great podcast called the Beamer Podcast, where they talk about this in depth. This Messianic Jew points this reality that when you look at the, the rainbow in the clouds, what do you see? It's, the word is not actually rainbow in the text. It's actually bow. And there's a school of thought in the, the, with theologians who would suggest that the bow word is the bow for bow and arrow. This is a sign of a weapon. And here is a question. Where is the weapon pointing away from? It's not a trick question. It's a directional just observation. The earth. For those of you who don't know how bow and arrows work, the curve. Pointing away from the earth. The bow is at peace with the world. I will never again exact my judgment on the whole earth like I have done. But here is what the Messianic Jews are unpacking. They they say this, but where is the bow pointing towards? Heaven. And there's this symbolism that's beautiful here that through the lens of Christ, you, you could suggest that God is highlighting the only way forward here is not by smashing the earth with another flood. It's by me coming down and taking the judgment upon myself. Becoming what you could not become, the better fulfillment of the law, the better judge, the better king, the better prophet, the better Noah, the better Israel, the better Adam. By standing in the seat that we couldn't stand, that we, by doing what we couldn't do, God says this, it is not about you doing more. Friends, someone in this room thinks that the answer to your problem is coming to church. It's not. Someone here is like, right, well, I'm going then. Some of you in this room think the answer to your prayer is praying more, reading your Bible more, a list of behaviors you need to try harder to do. The answer isn't you doing more. That's all the Old Testament proves us. We fail at. The answer is Jesus. The answer is that He would come and He would restore. And here's the beauty of the Old Testament is that God, God knew in Genesis what would happen in Matthew. He points towards it. This is why... As, uh, as the Bible Project says so beautifully, they write, with Jesus, the wicked were spared and the righteous ones sank beneath the waters of death. Unlike Noah, Jesus did not escape the flood alive. The waters of death rose and drowned him. Noah survived by flood, by this flood, by taking shelter in the ark. But in his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus became the ark itself. He became a shelter for the weary, for the broken, not just for his own family, but for all creation. The bow points to God. And so every time you see a rainbow this week, you can be reminded that God's covenant with us is that never again, but also that always there is a way home. It doesn't require you dying on a cross, but Christ does. So here's my question to the answer to what is the solution to your problem? Do you know Jesus? Have you declared Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Have you rested in Him as the shelter and ark from the chaos and the storm of the world around us? Have you chosen to follow the one who chose you? 
Would you pray with me? So gracious God, thank you. Thank you for choosing. Thank you for for choosing to not exact your judgment on the whole earth in a way of a flood ever again, but to step down off your throne to become what we could not become, that we might become sons and daughters of God. Thank you, Jesus. Some of you walked in here with problems right now. Some of you are Christians and some of you are yet to know Jesus. And I've got to let you know that right now in this moment, the good news of salvation is that the problem of the human heart is not to try harder with behavior modification, but to come to Christ and experience spiritual transformation. That this happens through saying, God, I'm sorry. I turn, I repent, and I walk after you. Will you come to the better Noah, the better ark, the better law, the better king, the better prophet, our better friend? So if you've walked in here today and you know your heart is problematic. I don't know if you've been in church all your life. If you've done this a thousand times, this is your first time. But you know that it's time that you responded and said, Jesus, I want to follow you. Maybe you need to recommit or maybe it's a first time commitment or maybe you just want to respond to what the Holy Spirit's doing this moment, reminding you that you aren't enough, but Christ is. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I'm going to be looking, but everyone else is going to be praying. If you want to respond today and say, I need this, can I ask you to do something grave? Because you know what? I'm standing down the front. I need this. This week was horrible. What I want to ask you is this. Would you stand where you are right now? If you want to respond and say, Jesus, I need you to help me with this problem, thank you for that courage. Thank you for that courage. Thank you for that courage. Guys, what I want you to do is, is just some people are standing, just down the very back. I would love you to, st- if someone's standing near you, can you just go and stand with them? And I want to wait for a moment longer. I think there's more of us that need to stand. Do you need to respond to Christ today? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hey, if you follow Jesus, you call me Life Brisbane home. Can you just, can you, if someone's standing around you, can you just go stand with them? Hey, host team, just jump in. That's great. That'd be awesome. Just go stand with them. Don't let them stand alone. Don't let them stand alone. I just, just, just stand with them. There are people right now just saying, I don't know what's going on, but I just, hey, I want to let you know that if you're standing right now, you're in a room filled with people who know what this means to, to need Jesus. The only common characteristic we all have is that we all are broken and need Christ. In fact, friends, would you all stand in solidarity right now? Would we all just stand together around these people who have just been prayed for in this moment? I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And this prayer is for those people who just stood, but we're all going to say it together. We pray this prayer often. It's a prayer which teaches us what it means to come home. Would you repeat these words after me? Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my wickedness. Help me with the problem of my heart. Cleanse me. Be my Lord, my Savior, my friend. Teach me to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, we love you. I thank you right now in this moment. There are people who are responding for the the third, fourth, fifth time, or maybe even the first, and they're saying, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. God, you know what? I need you. We need you. We're desperate for you. Be, Lord, I pray you will reveal to us how you are the better way to the darkness of the problem. Lead us home. Thank you for your grace and your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends.
There's some people being prayed for, being stood with. I wonder if you would just join with us as we respond to God in worship. Let's sing together.